This is a Federal News Network podcast. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, September 13th, 2021, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Amelia Brust and David Thornton. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how the intelligence community changed for good in the aftermath of 9-11. Plus, when it comes to artificial intelligence, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, longtime employees at the Office of Personnel Management have vivid memories of September 11th and its aftermath. The traffic, the chaos of everyone trying to leave Washington. They also remember OPM as a source of information for agencies, helping them decide how to send their employees home and crafting guidance for the following day. Kathy McGettigan is a senior advisor to the OPM director. Kathy Whipple is the agency's deputy general counsel, and Brenda Roberts is the deputy associate director for pay and leave. All three were at OPM back then. They tell Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco what they remember about how their agency responded. The first voice you hear is McGettigan's. On 9-11, I was CFO at that time of the agency, and I was actually waiting in the director's suite for a meeting um, when the first plane hit the World Trade Center. And I had worked for many, many years downtown in Manhattan and had been to the World Trade Center often. So at first the reports were sketchy and I thought, well, it was probably an accident involving a small plane. But then of course it became apparent that that it wasn't, but the meeting was canceled and I went back to my office and, uh, you know, that office had had a TV and several of us were watching the news and, you know, saw the second plane hit. And um, at that point, I think we all realized that the, the country was under attack. On personal level, as I, I said, I had worked, you know, we had relocated down from New York. I was certainly most concerned because several family members were working at the World Trade Center site. And in addition, I also had many business acquaintances and former neighbors, you know, um, we relocated down from Long Island um, from Plandome, and um, many of the people in, in town Glendome and Manhasset worked at the World Trade Center complex. So my thoughts were certainly up there. But meanwhile, at OPM, you know, we continued to watch the reports and speak with staff and try to sort of calm people down. And and because people obviously were very upset, you know, I, I vividly remember turning from the TV and looking out my window and seeing thick black smoke from the Pentagon. And questions ran through my mind as they did, I think, through everybody's, uh, you know, where else and what else might be attacked, what was happening, and certainly was my family in danger. My daughter was in middle school in Potomac. She, along with her classmates, were locked down, but my son was over at Gonzaga College High School, which is on North Capitol near, near Union Station, and, you know, it seemed risky for everybody to to be relying on public transportation. So I drove across town to get him and it was just chaos on the roads, you know, to try to get across town. It took hours and traffic was barely moving and people were, you know, very terrified and disoriented and standing trying to, to get buses. And when I finally did arrive at Gonzaga, I learned that the mother of one of the boys had been a stewardess on Flight 77, which, of course, was the flight that crashed into the Pentagon. So 
later on that day, I was able to reach my husband and my parents, of course, were in New York City up in Queens and reached them and let them know that we were okay down here. And, you know, to find out about, mostly it was my cousins, several of them, cousins and cousins in law who were working at the World Trade Center complex, but they will thankfully survive. Kathy, do you want to chime in at this point? I also had worked in New York from 1980 to 1995, so I was equally shocked by what was happening and knew that there would inevitably be people I knew affected by this. I wasn't in the World Trade Center. I worked for the state attorney general, and they had moved from the World Trade Center, I think, in 1988, but many of the other state agencies were still there. You know, I had walked through the World Trade Center the day of the car bomb in the 90s, so I I knew exactly that, you know, all all heck was breaking loose. In the meantime, like Kathy, I I saw the smoke from the Pentagon. We lived through several waves of rumors that the State Department had been hit because from our angle of the building, it looked like smoke was coming from the State Department as well. That really evoked a lot of fear that any agency could be hit. And because there was an announcement in the building that we should leave, I did take my leave that day. We my partner walked across town. I had the car and we were able to get right into the West Street Tunnel and we brought another of my colleagues along with us who needed to get home to her dog who was not well. So we we absented ourselves. But I know from talking with my supervisor, the general counsel, Mark Robbins, that he disappeared very quickly down to the director's office and that the cluster of people in the director's office spent the day trying to pass information on to agencies about what should be happening, you know, to give them advice about whether they should close or not and what kind of provision, what kind of announcements they should make to their work staff. I know they also started thinking about what to do about the next day. And the decision was made that people should come back to work. I looked up something that Kay James said in an article recently about that day, she was, Kate Coles James was the director then. She said she had witnessed the federal workforce commit a million acts of quiet defiance against terrorism by returning to work. And she's exactly right. They had worked up with the White House on developing some messaging to allow people to get excused absence the next day if they'd been affected by this because of family members or even if they just didn't feel comfortable returning to work that day because of anxiety. But almost everybody came back. That's, that's what I remember. And people wanted to do something to help. In the next few days, we put out guidance, reminding agencies of what workforce flexibilities were available to them, hiring authorities. I think at some point we set up a uh, hotline for retirees to call in and let folks know that they'd be interested in coming back to work on projects related to 9-11 if there was a need. And then longer term work began after that. But in the short run, basically, we're a hub for information and for people to let us know if they wanted to help. And Brenda, what what do you remember from that day? Well, on 9-11, I was a junior staffer at the time, but I worked in the office and I still work on the office that kind of releases people when there's some kind of emergency that happens in the Washington, D.C. area. And I'll never forget the day because we got put on alert when the first plane hit the World Trade Center. 
And then the second plane hit. And it, it was just like everybody started realizing it was something that we needed to take action on. And then shortly thereafter, you know, we had the Pentagon that was hit. And at that time, we were trying to figure out what to do, whether we should call agencies, because back in the day, we used to call agencies and release them. So we, we were trying to, to figure out, do we need to call the agencies? Do we need to get them out of the city? What should we be doing? And at that point, these alarms went off in the building to evacuate us. And everybody started um, kind of panicking a little bit because we thought a, um, a bomb had went off at the State Department, a car bomb, which we found out later it didn't. But there was such a panic that everybody went out of the building. So my people usually stay and they do emergency guidance. And so at that time, I had three young children and I um, had a baby at the time. And so my two bosses, they told me to go home. And so I went out of the building with my friends and uh, it was just like total chaos. It was like being in a, um, a disaster movie. <laughs> the cars were like, piled up and you couldn't get across the street. It just, um, it was just bad. <laughs> and so my friend and I, we got across to where my van pool was parked and I found out my van pool left me <laughs> and there were no cell phones, you know, every, so you, you couldn't be in touch with people that day. And so I was stuck. So I decided I was going to go back into the building and I was going to help my, my two bosses in order to get the guidance out. And so I, I was able to get back in and uh, we, we started working on the guidance. But before I did, I, I was able to get two calls out of the building before the phone system shut down. One was to my neighbor asking her to pick up my children. And then the second one was to my daycare center, asking them to make sure that my children had extra diapers and everything in order to, to be taken care of. And so then Don Winstead and Joanne and I, we started working the guidance and with the director's office, of course. So we stayed there and we prepared the guidance that, uh, that Kathy was talking about that went out on the 14th and there was, or 13th, and then there were this guidance that went out on the 14th calling up the National Guard. And I do remember the discussions taking place on what announcement should we have the following day and that the White House saying that we were not going to let terrorists shut down the federal government. And so the announcement was very clear that we were going to be open the next day. I do remember that. And I just remember it as a day when everybody wanted to help everybody. And when um, it was lunchtime, I remember our director's office taking care of us, making sure we had something to eat. And then when it was time for all of us to go home, I remember my top boss offering to give me money to get home if I needed it and offering to go to the ATM to get a taxi in the, um, for me. And I remember that no taxi would come into the, the city at that point. So that wasn't an option. So my other boss actually drove me home and I, I live a distance away. <laughs> and I remember the drive home. It was so eerie. There were no cars on the street because by then the DC had cleared out and it was just very eerie at that point. And it was no cars on 95 getting home. It was just a very scary day watching the Pentagon burning and 
but OPM stayed there and they, they did their part. We did our little part in making sure that our agencies had the guidance in order to help their employees. We even established a, a, an ELP, ELTP that day, which is donated leave for people that were in need at the Pentagon. It will be something that I will never forget. <laughs> Can you all remind me on the day of, is it, was it OPM that tells agencies, okay, you should send your employees home or did that come from somewhere else or just looking for a little more detail there? Ultimately, if I can put my lawyer hat on for a minute, agency <laughs> heads have the authority to release their staff if they need to, uh, you know, because they know those circumstances at their building. OPM generally provides the guidance that agencies follow. But on that day, I think agency heads were doing what they thought was best without waiting to hear from us, although they were, I think, very eager to hear from us about the plans for the next day. Yes. And of course, releasing everybody, you know, in that manner is what jammed everything up, right? I mean, it right. wasn't an orderly way. I think that's one of the lessons we learned, right? Yes. That might not have been the safest thing to do either because if there had been follow-on actions and we have a park across the street from us that divides the two, the eastbound and the westbound lanes of E Street. And uh, cars were actually driving through the park over the sidewalk to try to get to the tunnel. I, I remember that because I had stupidly suggested that I meet my partner there. And I, it was like taking your life in your hands to go into that park. And it occurred to me that, you know, that would have been a great location for a secondary action by somebody if that had been part of the plan. And I think after that, we started thinking about maybe staggered releases or sheltering in place might be better in some circumstances. And that went into, you know, coop planning after that continuity of operations planning. So, Kathy, you just touched on that. But how how did things change just based on that experience, either emergency planning or telling employees to go home. How did that change? What did you learn? Again, you touched on it, Kathy, but just any more detail that you um, can share on that. You know, we did modify um, coop plans to cover all the contingencies, including possible chemical or biological attacks, which might require closing buildings instead of everybody exiting. We practice sheltering in place in different ways to address various attacks that might be possible. But we do have more elaborate plans for continuity of government. We started practicing them more frequently. You know, there are times when agencies actually do send teams away from the building to do some practicing of how they would respond to various threats you know, sort of in a game, gaming process. So that was one thing that came out of that. Another thing was, you know, the stand-up of the Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And in the first instance, actually, the sort of reorganization of, uh, of TSA. OPM was very active in helping both TSA and DHS establish themselves. I think some of the senior members of our staff worked on the legislation with the White House for the Homeland Security Act. And that effectuated some big changes across government, both in how the government would respond to, you know, detecting terrorist attacks and also how it would respond to actual terrorist attacks. 
Kathy, Brenda, want to chime in on any of those points there? I agree with everything that Kathy has said. We do have a better system of releasing agencies in emergency situations now, and Brenda's probably the best person to talk about that. But um, I can talk a little about, you know, the coup. We really strengthened that. Security, as you can imagine, became very tight at agencies, at all federal buildings. You know, all cars entering or leaving OPM were searched. Now you had to pop your trunk and, and the guards checked under your car with the mirror to see that there was nothing, you know, no explosive under there. We did practice a lot in terms of going to coop sites. You know, we had a continuity of operation sites. We had um, designated drivers who were going to take a group of coop members to the coop site. In fact, I was one of them, one of the designated drivers to our coop site at that time. And we did practice runs to make sure that we would be prepared. Director James authorized special solicitation for charities to respond to the needs in New York or in Washington and Shanksville. You know, our CFC was was already, the yearly campaign was already going, but this was a special solicitation. And that, that's one of the things, you know, we've, we've learned from all of these things that we did very quickly. We used that to really improve, in this case, special solicitations going forward. Yes, our guidance continually improves. We prepare government-wide dismissal guide that provides announcements now and what those announcements mean. And we, we make sure that the agencies communicate those announcements to the actual employees. So if an emergency occurs, they know what to do. So all of that kind of came out of 9-11. We practiced with the COOP exercises. We have exercises with the White House and the White House Domestic Resilience Group that they have. And OPM's part is to provide guidance to our agencies so they have the tools that they need in order to help people during emergencies. So it's not only the release of it, but the aftermath. So first and foremost, the safety of the federal workforce, and then we support the continuity of operations. So all the guidance that we actually have out there is supporting that, and it provides all the flexibilities in law and regulation in order to tell the agencies what they have to help people. An example of that would be the guidance that we put out this week for like Hurricane Ida. So it's not just 9-11, but it's any emergency that occurs. And, you know, how do we help our population? How do we help our agencies who help their customers, you know, their their employees? Some of what you talked about 20 years ago seems like it, it may have resonated a little bit last year, this year, as you're communicating with employees about the pandemic. Any parallels that you see there? Anything else that maybe resonates with you then that you're kind of drawing on now? All those efforts built on, I mean, there'd been a SARS event. So I think that was one of the instigating factors for studying what we would do in a pandemic. But they all built on things that started after 9-11. I think OPM in general began to focus a little bit more on being sort of a strategic partner in addition to our normal compliance roles in helping agencies be nimble and in helping agencies become aware of, you know, the the things that were available to them to handle emergencies. We were more proactive about telling them about those things. And again, having people practice things like telework so that when an emergency happened, people would know how to work from home. 
Yes, things have changed a lot. Mentioning telework, things have changed a lot since 9-11, like with telework and how we've used that as a way to continue work. So laws have changed and we worked with Congress and and others to kind of add to the HR flexibility tools that we have in order to provide what they have right now. So like when the pandemic hit, we were prepared to do the maximum telework and we're able to continue our missions. So you kind of have to look for ways like learning from 9-11. And as you go along with all the different emergencies that we worked with over the years in order to be able to improve. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of lessons that we learned from, you know, the pandemic also, you know, cause now we're thinking remote work. So you, you have to be nimble and flexible and, and try to use the HR flexibilities to the maximum so we can keep our workforce safe. Brenda Roberts, Deputy Associate Director of Pay and Leave at the Office of Personnel Management, with Kathy McGettigan, a Senior Advisor to the Director, and Kathy Whipple, the agency's Deputy General Counsel. They spoke with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, and check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, 
and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters uh, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? 
Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.